How do I change my awareness of pace? Because we know this, that you cannot solve a problem from the same awareness that created it. So if you don't have an ability, a tool set, a program, a habit, whatever it is to change your awareness of pace, you're stuck. And if you're stuck, the world's becoming a horrible place because AI is replacing your intelligence. The world's getting harder in many ways if you're not elevating your consciousness. And so advancement of neuroscience becomes a very practical way for us to start to think about raising our consciousness. Welcome to the Beyond Listening Podcast, a podcast for leaders and change makers who are continually expanding the way they listen, adapt, and act. The Beyond Listening Podcast hosts guests from diverse industries, cultures, and political perspectives. Its episodes distill the lessons we've learned and explore the questions we are still asking after decades of guiding organizational and personal transformations. Join us on this journey of soul and spirit in leadership and action. Today on the Beyond Listing podcast, you'll hear me, Miriam Jones, and Adam Rumack interviewing John Sine. John Sine is a futures strategist, international keynote speaker, advisor to the world's leading Fortune 100 companies, five times best-selling author, and global expert at Singularity University, faculty at Duke, and associate partner at the Copenhagen Institute for Future Studies. Join us on this fascinating ride with John Sine. I help leaders become more optimistic about uncertainty. If I really want to put it into the basic form is how do we create more optimism when there's so much uncertainty ahead of us, where our educational system has really got us to become addicted to certainty. So we have to rejig the way we about think about the future. So that's, that's kind of what I do in a nutshell. Yeah. Awesome. And I think I heard you on a, a hunting podcast. Yes. <laughs> You're talking about aliens and yes, artificial yes. intelligence, I think, and yes. psychedelics. And, yes. and what really captured me was when you talked about the the difference between sort of the industrial mindset that we've all been, mm. you know, for lack of a better word, indoctrinated with, and then the mindset that says everything's changing all the time and we're moving through cycles of order and disorder and reorder, and you use different language, and that's why we want to talk to you about it because the language that you were you were using was very powerful and precise. So I saw a lot of overlap there. So before we get into that, I was curious. I think you have a very profound story, sort of rags to riches to a new, new sort of riches story. So we always start on our podcast by hearing how someone got into the work that they're into and wanting to hear that origin story. And then from there, we pull on some of the threads that come up. So you can take it away. Great. Thank you. Yeah. My granddad was well known in our community as an elder of sorts, and he used to recite poetry and people in the community used to come and see him with their challenges uh, of the day. We're talking like 80s, right? And my granddad used to recite Persian poetry through with Hafez and Rumi and all these great poets and then relate stories out of the poetry towards their challenge that they were having and try and give them some wisdom from that level. And I was a kid, I was 10 years old, sitting around listening to my granddad. But I think storytelling's always been in my blood and my lineage as Persians, it's a big storytelling culture. And I combine that with two things. One, I've just always naturally been an early adopter. I wrote about it in my fourth book around the concept of all of us have a genius. It's our job to figure it out. And it's usually the thing that comes the easiest to us. And kind of being an early adopter and seeing what was coming next became quite a joke within my friends because they would always like say to me, oh, John, Hi, so what's next now? Like every time I'd see them, I'd have something new that I was talking about. And I combined that with my own deep fascination with my own consciousness because I, from a very young age, I've always wanted to know, I wanted to meditate, that nobody could teach me. This was, you know, BG before Google. So there was nothing that could teach me in any way. So nobody could guide me, but I've always had this yearning to do so. 
And I kind of lost the yearning until I went bankrupt in my early 30s. I was very, very successful. I come from a single mom family. Then I was very, very successful financially. And then I went bankrupt. And in that bankruptcy, I really started to search deeper and ask deeper questions of my masculinity, my consciousness, my psyche, all these stories. And I proceeded to do dozens and dozens of shamanic ceremonies and meditation retreats and men's circles. And so I combine my storytelling heritage with my fascination with the future and the fascination with diving deeper into my own consciousness. And I've been able to mix these three things. And I think it always catches my audiences by surprise because they're expecting somebody to come and talk purely about some level of strategy or futures ideas. But I always have to swing it back into some level of awareness and consciousness to try and give them an insight that really it's actually all about your consciousness. But I can't arrive there saying that because that would never be accepted by governments and organizations I work with. So it's almost like a Trojan horse process that gets me to come in and do what I do. Yeah. I'm impressed by your upbringing in the poetry of, of Persia. I think when we first started this podcast, just, as, just to sort of show you where we're coming from, what was the poem that we used, Miriam? The love one. Oh, yeah, that's right. I just read it. Oh my gosh, we'll yeah, have to come back to it. it. Yeah, and, I, and I'm thinking of actually the Rumi one, do not feel lonely, the entire universe is inside you. Yeah. And, mm. and I'm recognizing that that thread might be part of your work. Well, you know, the link I have to Rumi is that I don't write any of my books, I dictate them. And yeah. he also never wrote any of his poetry. And when I found that, I was like, oh, I felt so comfortable in my ability to think while I speak rather than write, you know? And so yeah. it's, uh, yeah, so obviously connected. I think the Persian heritage is just so deep and so vast and just a wonderful thing to tap into. And then that tradition of the bard. I don't know if you've ever seen David White speak, but I imagine you're a bit yes. like him. So, so that well, ability to sort of speak to everybody in the room and then get to the core of the human experience. Mm. And I love that you're that Trojan horse mentality. So you're coming in with that mindset and you're coming into rooms full of people with tremendous power, whether they realize it or not, or they think they have more power than they do in some cases, but, and then getting to the core of, of the essence of who they are and their own experience. There are very few people in the world that we live in, I think that can, that can tap into that. So that's very cool. Thank you. That's really great to hear. You know, I, I, I'm feeling it more and more of a privilege to do that, but also the academia is a mask and the academia yeah. used to be what was important. Yep. And so it's still regarded as highly necessary, but actually it's the academia itself that's holding us back from consciously growing, but you have to arrive under the guise of academia and then move into what you really need to move into. So yeah, thank you so much for seeing that. I'm so struck by, and I, I wasn't expecting this, but in your story, the relationship between, and perhaps the tension between the unnameable, the mystery, the thing that can't be captured, and science. You use a lot of neuroscience and the mm. thing that the art of actually naming things and categorizing them and the relationship between those two and perhaps the tension between those two. I think as a westernly educated society, we require some level of anchor to give us a better understanding of the mystical. I think many of us want to, but somehow, even with all the work I've done, until I met Dr. Joe Dispenza, the way he described the process of consciousness and raising your awareness, that gave me so much more motive to meditate longer, to engage with the work deeper because of the, the analytical side of it. So, and I also think as men, sometimes we need more analytical. Women have a much more trusting and nurturing process moving forward. We're getting there. I mean, I do joke with my audiences that EQ is something men are having to learn over the last decade or so. So it's something new that we, we're engaging with. I noticed you use the word anchor rather than container. Have you noticed that relationship when something anchors you so that you can go into that kind of mystery, unnameable, and mm. when it contains it and limits it, have you mm. explored that? I like that. Uh, just, I've never thought of it like that. Yeah, that's a wonderful, yeah, I've never actually thought about it as a container in those terms. I have a different way of speaking about container. I, I call neuroscience the container for software. The way I describe it is that the psychology we carry is software. 
and the neuroscience we have as the container that holds the software. And what we've been doing for the last hundred years or so is upgrading our software, our psychology. And now we're living in a world where everybody's read Brenner Brown, everybody's read Atomic Habits, everybody's seen Simon Sinek. We've all seen the greats, but people are more anxious than ever before. And there's more Prozac being sold than ever before, which means that software doesn't necessarily get us ready for what's next. We need to change the container in which we can hold the capacity of better software. And neuroscience is the only thing that can do that. So I use container in that term, but I've never thought of it in the term that you explained it. Thank you for that. That's a good insight to have. So I'm just going to follow that thread because I'm curious. You know, I tend to, I tend to think, and it could be completely wrong about this, that humans have sort of diverted off a path of health and wellness socially and physically and mentally. And like we've been confused for the last couple hundred years. Mm. Um, and I, you know, the multiple industrial revolutions have sort of amplified that confusion. Mm. I'm curious if, if you see progress, you know, as a futurist and also, you know, as a futurist, I imagine you study the past. If you think that mm. we're progressing and it sounds like you do have that idea that, that, that neuroscience is going to continue to take us further into, you know, almost a human potential. I tend to think about what, what we do as a sort of course correction. So bringing people back to more humanness. Mm -hmm. How do you, as a futurist, what do you think mm -hmm. about that in terms of human progress, neuroscience, mm -hmm. cultural, social health, mental mm -hmm. health, et cetera? So I like the word that you use, confusion. There has been mass confusion. I think asking the wrong questions, I think that's kind of been the confusion is that we've been duped into thinking that we need to follow the system. And I heard a great quote the other day. It said, people are not exhausted and fatigued, they feel betrayed. Hmm. And the difference is that people are betrayed by the system that we're told to follow. And we think it's, it's fatigue, but it's actually just betrayal. And we're exhausted by the emotional turmoil that has been brought about by not giving our emotions any credit whatsoever, because following the system was following the system that would allow us to bring, I don't know, linear type of innovation, which I honestly think was absolutely necessary. I don't think it was unnecessary. And I also don't think it was wrong. I think it was the best we had at the time. I think we went in the wrong direction because we became fixated with profitability and dopamine being rushed into our heads and wired in that way, right? So I do think that we also have to think about the future in broader terms than one future. I do often talk about myself as a futures strategist, which means there's a plural on future means that there are multiple futures happening and there will always be multiple futures happening. There's obviously broad strokes that move forward, but ultimately there's duality in our reality. Technology will always be used for good and bad and so will a surgeon's knife and that's always going to be the case. I do think there are pockets of neuroscience recalibration. I think there are pockets of consciousness growing and I think those pockets are growing. If anything, they're growing not diminishing. But I think on the other end, you have North Korea and China and all the other places as well, where there's a, a huge amount of pressure. Iran, for example, a huge amount of dumbing down of the, of the population and a lot of propaganda that's happening there. And we mustn't also be duped the fact that we've all been propagandered in the West as well. So yeah. we're waking up to all the propagandas, except some people are still under the guise of the propaganda and they're still stuck there. Your country is, a fa is, is well known for it because there's propaganda in there. And when I go into America, there's a deep understanding of the perspective that's being brought in under that. So I think there are pockets of consciousness, but it's also important for us to realize that we need to help people understand how to move uh, through this consciousness. And also firstly, understand that you are actually, I suppose, caught up in a story. And to be able to see that story will become the beginning of your ability to start to move away from it, you know, or, or to elevate from it. So I, I think there are pockets, but I don't think everybody ever will. I think there'll always be some population numbers that will be denser, but that's fine. That's the part of that soul journey that they have to take on and that's what they have to learn. And if there's anything we can do specifically to help more people domino effect into waking up, then we should. And that's what we're doing here, I guess. Yeah. I, and I've got two, they're going to seem like very, very different questions, maybe but I'm sure you'll be able to tie them together. One is, what does progress look like from a neuroscientific perspective, the raising of consciousness? 
And then I'm curious how growing up in South Africa, or South Africa, I should say, and I happened to be there at the 10 year anniversary of the end of apartheid. So it was there for much, you know, it was very much uh, part of the consciousness still and the sort of liberating possibility of building a new culture uh, with diversity was very present at that time. So I'm curious how growing up in South Africa, where there was a sort of coming out of one regime and one mindset, I guess in the 80s, you were, you were there right near the end of it. So how that shaped your perspective on growth and consciousness and, and this sort of waking up, and then also where you see that waking up happening now in the present time in your global travels, global exploration. And let me just start off with, I was absolutely petrified when the ANC was taking over. Why? Because I was watching the news. <laughs> so yeah. the news told me there was going to be mayhem, go and stock up on your canned food. Everybody in South Africa, well, should I say, all the white people in South Africa were, not that I'm white, but anyway, I was whitish. Anyway, whitish, and we just had to go and buy all this canned food. So I don't know if that really affected me. I think what really affected me more than anything else was witnessing Nelson Mandela become Nelson Mandela and then yeah. move into the world as Nelson Mandela. What that did for the country. I remember the 95 Rugby World Cup. It was just massive, you know, the way he, he became a global ambassador for humanness, you know? So that was, that was the pride moment for us. And I, I met him twice and he just had this air about him, this light yeah. around him, which is really just amazing. I also remember, remember that he got, he was incarcerated for, I think of the 27 years, 18 years or 10 years, I'm not, I'm not sure, on an island in the middle of the Atlantic, yeah. which was the most beautiful place in the world with the most beautiful view, with the That's most beautiful right. weather. I mean, nature healed him as well. I mean, the mother city, Cape Town, is a healing city. Yeah. And something the National Party shot themselves in the foot because when they put him there, they didn't know what they were doing. They were awakening his spirit in many ways. You know? As far as an advanced neuroscience patterning is concerned, what we have to realize, and I don't know how much about neuroscience, you know, I would imagine you're a fair bit, but either way, our experience of time is determined by the frequency of brainwave that we practice throughout the day. When you are in a state of low beta to mid alpha, time is very, very different to when you're in a high beta adrenaline-fueled perspective. And an advanced brain state is one that is elegant but clear, that has a calm heart and crisp thinking. And that is only achieved through an alpha brainwave. It's not achieved through a high beta. It's not achieved through a mid beta. And what you have to do is you have to understand the resonance of your brainwaves. And in the process of understanding the resonance of your brainwaves, move yourself into that state of flow. It's a flow state in many ways. And so an advanced human being is somebody that is not aging quickly that is able to keep a calm heart and a clear mind, is able to be able to utilize its, his or her imagination in an active way of procreating rather than reacting to the world ahead of us. And is one that really celebrates uncertainty with joy more than anything else. And I think what we're seeing is a transition in the process that we are seeing now because people that are doing a lot of the work have spurts of this and then move back to familiarity and then spurts of it. And eventually the spurts will become more and more and more. And eventually you'll start changing that frequency into a higher range of frequency, which allows you that flow state and trusting the uncertain future. And so an advanced person is quite, you can see an advanced person, Nelson Mandela, for example, very elegant, very calm, very clear, understands exactly what they're doing, very collaborative and a, a mature human being in many ways. And so that's a, that's a practice of trauma healing, play, active imagination, meditation, microdosing, the things that have become so sort of mainstream, which I'm so happy about because if becoming mainstream, it means that people are starting to realize that this becomes the most important question you should be asking yourself is, how do I change my awareness at pace? Because we know this, that you cannot solve a problem from the same awareness that created it. So if you don't have an ability, a tool set, a, a program, a habit, whatever it is to change your awareness of pace, you're stuck. And if you're stuck, the world's becoming a horrible place because AI is replacing your intelligence. The world's getting harder in many ways if you're not elevating your consciousness. And so advancement of neuroscience becomes a very practical way for us to start to think about raising our consciousness. It's kind of cool because I keep coming back to the universe is inside you. 
<laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like that. the wisdom has been there. And I love the way that you equate AI. I love it because I think so too. You equate the challenge of AI as one of actually challenging us to growth as a human oh, yeah. species. Absolutely. And a particular sort of growth, like the industrial age challenged us to one sort of growth and now exactly. here's another sort of growth, which is developing our mentality and our consciousness. We would have never had this level of intelligence if the steam engine didn't arrive. We'd still be in the farms. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah of course and we would be. I'm still kind of curious. I'm going back to kind of an original question and I'm going to phrase it in another way because it's this relationship. So if Rumi had that wisdom that came through him, and it's come through other wisdom traditions about how we progress in consciousness. In your work, what I think we've observed is that people still want to approach it in a linear fashion. So they want to approach it in a scientific fashion, like step one, step two, step three, step four. And I'm wondering how you observe that in your work, because it seems to me that it's something that where that actually limits the progression of consciousness. And so how do, you, how do you get over that barrier with people? Good question. Good question. I just remembered Adam's third question, which was where in the world do you see consciousness pockets? And I want to say to you, Adam, every city's got pockets. There's pockets everywhere. And often people think Dubai doesn't have it. Dubai has a huge pocket of consciousness. Oh, like I imagine, huge, yeah. Like surprisingly huge when you think of all the bling. And I think New York has got it and LA's got it and Johannesburg has got it and Delhi's got it. All of, everybody's got it. It's just pockets everywhere, right? As far as the linearity of consciousness, Miriam, I think it's important for us to meet people at what they need at that time. I think it's a bridge, quite literally a bridge, a straight line bridge from this level of consciousness to the next one. And I think at some point you start to realize that the bridge is not necessary anymore, but you needed to bridge them from their anchor points towards the next anchor point, which then allows them to move on freely. So I imagine you had a more advanced understanding of it, or maybe you never even needed the bridge. But there are people in the world that have been educated, got their Cambridge degrees, they are lawyers, and all they know is that identity. And for them to lose that identity is incredibly, incredibly emotional. And so how do you give them a tool set that allows them to fix it into their thinking and then let them slowly move out of that? And that's my job, because I see that. I see they've got good intentions, but they're just... They're just asking the wrong questions. And so i got to meet them at where they're at first. Yeah. And I was also taken in your story about the breaking points in terms of the transformational points were given to you by life, the breaking point of bankruptcy and of divorce. And I wonder if you've observed that is that, you know, it comes to a point where no one can give it to you, but life tends to give it to you. Have you observed that as well? I mean, it's in your story, but have you observed that in others? Absolutely. Everybody's got a bit of a, a wall that falls on top of them. I think it's human nature. I think we've all got to go through this sort of break to be able to figure out what's next, you know? Hopefully people use it as a catalyst and don't get caught up in one of the five stages of mourning, which many people are, you know? Some people are just angry for their whole lives or sad for their whole lives. And unfortunately, what we do is we turn to alcohol or Prozac and then we get stuck in that loop. And so many people are stuck in that loop, you know? They haven't processed their emotions, you know? But the future is not about being smarter. And I think that's what everybody needs to understand. It's about being wiser. It's about having more adaptability in your way you make decisions, which is exactly the opposite of what intellectual analysis and thinking and IQ is all about. So we have to change this, I don't know, rudder of decision-making, if you want to call it that. And it's more heart and less mind, less body as well. It's more heart. It's, it's really all about this, you know? So people that aren't able to deal with their emotions and, and not be able to process these emotions are having a really, really tough time around the world, you know? As I was pouring back through, through some of your material, I was, you know, a lot of what you're, you're speaking to individuals, because essentially that's the easiest, it's where we have the most agency. I can decide to start a meditation program tomorrow, be a lot harder to get my whole team to do that, my whole city to create a whole pocket of consciousness, but I, I know I can do that tomorrow to some degree. But also you're talking about systems, big, big overarching systems that are, have a lot of gravity and momentum. So I was curious where, where you see the overlap between the personal consciousness and change and collective consciousness changing and where, where you've seen that actually happen. We tend to work with organizations. They're like discrete systems 
or relatively discrete systems where you can work with a whole collective of people to go through a change process, transformation process. So you're kind of up-leveling everybody at once and then working with individuals within that. And I wonder if you have any stories or examples of where you've seen that personal transformation also lead to the collective or vice versa in your work in particular? um, That's a big question. You know, I, my job is to try and put them in the right direction and then for people like you to come in and guide them further. You know, mine's a directive work. And if I can just get a board or an exec team just to ask a question that's like five degrees different to their current question, it starts to lead them in a new way. And that level of individual change is then required by you to come and help them do that individual change. The other way of actually doing it is to build so much context into their decision-making process to give them so many new data points that they make themselves the decision-makers of the new direction. And that's the consciousness that made the new decision. But I do both ways. But then I also don't go into the very granular work. And I remember this when we spoke last time is that's not my place. My place is to work with those decision-makers, help them ask a new direction and help them figure out what could be another way to try and solve the problem they're currently having or for them to actually jump sectors and solve a new problem. Yeah. But that takes courage and it takes trust. I call it trust, courage, clarity. What I've got to do with an audience is get them to trust me. And once they trust me to build the courage within them to realize that they might not have all the answers for tomorrow and that maybe they need to divert from their comfort zones. But that only happens after they've trusted me and they've built some courage. And then what I do is I build tomorrow teams with them. And those tomorrow teams are the clarity of system to come up with new ideas for the future. I also think it's very, very hard to take existing companies and change too much too quickly because it often reverts back to normal behavior far too easily because the very structure of that business is built on economies of scale. It's built on efficiencies and profitabilities, not built for adaptability. And so what I like to do is like to build a tomorrow team that's at its heart, very adaptable, very small and nimble, like a jet fighter to Boeing. So that for me becomes an easier process to try and like plan three, four years ahead. Whereas when you ask your existing people to think that far ahead, it's a very, very tough thing because they quite, quite literally might not know and also don't have the new capabilities and also have far too much legacy thinking. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in two minds around, you know, I think you've got to do both. I think it's important for you guys to come in and also, but I don't know if it's quick enough for what the world requires. And I think the very structure of the business might be against what the world needs next. But we don't yeah. know, you know, that's kind of what we all try and yeah. You just named our pain. Yeah. <laughs> you just named our pain. And it, it does feel like I love when, you know, we've had the privilege of working with land-based cultures, Indigenous cultures, and the whole mentality of of the seven generations. And so, you know, the idea of, yes, it is about both. It's about like building the next now and also doing the slow, steady work of actually tilling the soil for the generations for changes we might not even see in our lifetime. I think in the vastness of change that's coming, we need two teams. I don't think the same person or the same crew can do both. It's very difficult. And by asking the same team to do both, you're getting them to do both badly. Let's talk more about that then. I'm going to use a little bit of language that you might use too. That there's the hospice team and there's the midwifery team. Oh, I've never heard that before. Hospice people are dying, right? And from the low frequency perspective, you know, dying right. might be a bad thing. But from a high right. frequency perspective, sure. you know, it's we're transitioning, we're caring for the current system so that there's as little pain as possible in the inevitable pain. transition. Okay. And okay. the midwifery team is, you know, giving births. So they're focused on helping the current system give birth to the next system. What do you think are the current requirements, skills, mindset required for both of those teams? Like when when you're building, when you're nurturing the current team and you're building the future team, what are you looking for? What are you talking to executives or leadership about? There's a couple of ways I can skin this. A very broad, basic way is you need to ask yourself as an organization with AI arriving or here, is are you defending, extending, or upending your business? Are you going to use AI to defend what you're up to? 
and which everybody's going to be doing. So it's not going to really give you a competitor's advantage. Are you extending your skill set or really building something, an IP with AI to extend your skill sets out into the future? And or are you going to upend your whole industry and create brand new industry? This is high risk, but high reward. And all three of those are very different. <laughs> or just, just those three are different. Like you're defending, you're bringing efficiencies to your existing business. You're taking your core competencies and pushing them way out there. Or you're going to be very, very disruptive. So already that's broken down into three. Or you can take it another way and say, look, you just need to break up your business into today and tomorrow teams. And your today team is very much linked exactly like it is, but your tomorrow team is built with a team of five to 10 people with data science, machine learning, AI, and gaming as skill sets. And get them to sit in a room and get them to build a tomorrow team with a small percentage of your business. And it was Peter Diamandis who recently said in an interview that we are about to see the first billion dollar three-employed company. And this is because the utilization of AI and, and these sort of things, you don't need much manpower. So it's not a very expensive exercise, really, to build that up. So that's the second way. And, and, the, and the tomorrow team for me has a culture called slow motion multitasking, where you've got five or six people working on multiple projects all at the same time, rather than individualized finance, HR. It's a very different way that you build it. And that comes from Einstein, who was a slow motion multitasker, who would move in from exhausting himself onto what project and famously putting himself onto a rocking chair in front of a fireplace and rocking himself into theta brainwaves, downloading a whole bunch of wisdom and then moving on to the second process. He didn't explain it like this, but think about his practice. Exhaust, rock himself, never fall asleep. He always said that. He's, he always would stay how you would like to play in that halfway off a sleep state. That's theta. Theta is where you calm yourself down enough to download and then move on to the next one. So that's today and tomorrow, okay? So that's another way. Or you can start to think about it as something I call the AI opportunity radar. And this is broken down into four quadrants where you've got external and internal processes that you want to follow or you want to use AI for, and you want to use them in everyday or game-changing. So you've got external everyday processes, which is about seeing fires quicker, using AI to become better at collecting tax. Or you've got everyday internal, which is really about creating more efficiencies inside your business. Or you've got game-changing internal, which is you'll create a generative AI that advises people on finances based on all your data. Or you have external game-changing, which is about creating a brand new educational process like Khan Academy has done. They've created something called Khan Migo. And it's every time you study something, you can speak to, I don't know, Whoever the Gandhi, if you want to speak to Gandhi, you can speak to Gandhi after the process. Again, all four of these are very different. So you've got to ask yourself three questions. What's my appetite? What's my ambition? What are my capabilities? Am I using those to defend, extend, or upend? Am I working today and tomorrow? And how am I breaking those down? And how am I using AIs of internal, external, game-changing every day? And so it depends where you are and what business. And I don't think there's one skin for everybody you got to decide where you're at and where you're, where's the maturity of your industry and where are you ready to actually explore new industries if you have the ambition to do so. We're at a time of inflection in many ways, so it's a big time. I have a sideways question because as you're talking, I was thinking, well, where does purpose and soul Mm. fit into that good. you know yeah. because i sure. came back to the question of like technology can be used for good or mm. bad and this come up you know all over the place with ai you know mm. it's as much as the consciousness that creates it and the mm. intention of you know the unconscious mm. or conscious intention of that so where does as you're going in and looking at this where does that fit in good question for ten thousand years in the agricultural era we had three simple rules to follow they were follow your forefathers follow the seasons, and work the fields for 12 hours a day. If you could do that, you were successful. You could eat and trade something at the market and build your village. For 10,000 years, plus minus 500 generations, we were following those three simple rules. The most important skill we had was physical quotient, our physicality, PQ. When the Industrial Revolution arrived, our PQ became irrelevant. And what we had to start doing was not follow the seasons and not follow our forefathers, but follow the system and become analytical and logical and knowledge-based. And so we moved away from PQ to IQ. And IQ was about fitting in. The better you fit into the system, the more successful you become. But as we move into the quantum era now, we're now moving away from IQ as it becomes irrelevant with the advent of AI. And we move to AQ. And AQ is about adaptability quotient, which requires you 
to access your genius and your purpose. Because what you require here is your individuality, not fitting in, but fitting out. Because as we start to see the commoditization of intelligence and jobs and analytical intelligence, as well as algorithmic intelligence, which is all about pattern repetition and pattern recognition, which is all about a linear way of thinking based on logic and intelligence, which is exactly the opposite of what we require now, which is adaptability, high EQ. And in order to be truly adaptable, to be able to unlearn and relearn as quickly as possible, you have to have found your genius and your purpose. Now, we realize that the educational system, if you were looking for your purpose in the educational system, you were called a rebel and a troublemaker, and you were sent to the principal's office because you weren't fitting into the system. You were fitting out of the system. It's called being a troublemaker. And so we realized that the studies that they've done, and there's a study floating around at the moment from the 1960s where NASA wanted to hire geniuses to work for them. And so they built this whole system. They hired a guy. They ran a whole program, and they interviewed children at five years old, and they tracked them through school. And kids at five years old were 98% geniuses. And by the time they finished school, 2% of them were geniuses. So you realize that genius and purpose is at the heart of what's required for the next evolution of human beings. And that educational system required us not to access our genius and our full potential in many ways. And so we're sitting at a precipice again, where the educational system, the organizational structures are dehumanizing us. And now we need to actually move into more human factors than ever before. And I think AI is going to make us more human than we've ever been ever because it's forcing us to out of this idea that we've peaked at some level of intelligence, which is the most ridiculous thing to think about. And so we have got so much potential to go through. We just have to ask new questions and be brave enough to go down worlds that we haven't gone down before. You know, my last slide in my keynotes is seek discomfort. This is a time to seek discomfort. It's not a time to seek comfort. And when I say discomfort, it's like every single little iota of the identity and the things that we implicitly trusted have to be questioned. And that's a very hard thing to do. And so we need to build optimism within ourselves to do that. So purpose, great question, and absolutely necessary at the core of the skills of what's next. But you were asking me questions about organizational restructuring. And so if I think about a tomorrow team, I'll think about the tomorrow team being very much on purpose. Whereas I think the today team is still in the process of efficiencies and profitabilities and linear innovation. It's a different type of intelligence that's required. You said question every iota. And so I was thinking to myself, like, what am I not questioning here, right? And even in this conversation, and I'm thinking about even organizational systems, the fact that we organize in the way that we do at all, right? Mm. So we, work with some, we work with some kind of seed, seed organizations. They have very fluid structures. Nobody's employed. They make money in very interesting, mostly legal ways but they're sort of like amorphous in terms of an organization. I'm wondering what the future is there, particularly with AI and, and what you're thinking, you know, how we even, I mean, we just, we're, we're working on some legal stuff, right? We're still hospicing in many ways. We still have a very traditional structure as a, as a business and as a nonprofit too. So what do you think just to the big picture and how humans, how we organize ourselves and how we even conceive of ourselves as, as organizations or as businesses? is changing or will will change? I think it's already changed. You know, I think we've already seen a dispersion of many organizations from COVID. Now, the work from home is a dispersion of that structure in the first physical format, you know? And we're also seeing the rise of the creator economy and we're seeing the rise of individual sports stars being worth more than soccer teams or football teams. And there's this dispersion away from those structures. Look at, the, look at the idea of a church and religion. And there's already a dispersion. We already see that. There's a lot more individualism that's happening. I don't know if there's one broad answer. If I just extrapolate the existing technology and trends right now as you see them, I think the ability for us to access blockchain, to use that as a tool set with hyper-intelligence on top of that, I think we live in a very connected and emotionally intelligent world where a lot of the rudimentary stuff would have been taken away and we can actually really connect with humans on a much, much deeper level as our consciousness rises when a lot of the rudimentary left brain things get taken out of our way, which are actually useless things. And the example I always use with my um, audience is Google Maps. Like, does anybody miss using, like, being lost? Does anybody miss using a map? No. And if you think about it, 
you thank God Google Maps arrived. You know, every time I get to a new city, I'm like, thank the Lord. I can get lost in the city. I don't have to worry. That whole idea of driving somewhere in a new city and getting lost is gone. It's finished. There's nothing there. And so think about that now, extrapolating in every other part of your life. Do you feel less than that you're not reading a map? No, you don't. You're like so happy you're not doing it. So that's going to happen slowly and slowly. And then we have more time for connection and more time for that sort of deeper engagement. So I'm optimistic about it. I think there's definitely angles of AI that will get people trapped into loops, into basements, and into that sort of world where they're in metaverse their whole lives. But that's always going to be the case. You know, that's just human beings. Some people are going down that avenue and other people are going down other avenues. And my job really is to try and highlight our focus and energy on the upliftment of our consciousness to utilize it in the best way possible. Is everybody doing this? No. Some people don't want to be doing it. So that's also okay. But I think, again, it's a wonderful opportunity for us to become more conscientious and more conscious utilizing these tools and utilizing the dispersion of the structures we once thought that was absolutely necessary because we weren't actually identifying as ourselves, but in uniform of churches and uniform of organizations. Like I did some work with a real estate agency, a global real estate agency, and I went and spoke for them. They were all wearing the same clothes and they're adults. <laughs> they're adults, dude. They, they, it's like being at school. And I was like, what is going on here? Like, it's still, like, that's so weird. But if you think back, a lot of people used to do that back then. Yeah. It was like, that was the norm. Now it's much more individual. So I think it's already happened. And I think it will continue to happen. And hopefully it allows us to connect more with each other. I'll just, uh, Miriam, before I know you got a question, but I, I'm, I'm still, you know, sort of contemplating. My mind's been blown a little bit today in the last 45 minutes. You know, when I think about, the dispersion of work, you know, working from home, the sports stars making all this money, there's still a system, there's still a centralized system within all of them. I've been one of those people that's a little, trying to be naive by choice about AI, naive by choice about blockchain. You know, I know that it's changing things underneath the surface, but when I think about it, this, the sort of centralized economies are what's holding all of those organizational systems together. Without that, everything changes, the whole legal structure, ownership of land, all of these things, which most of us would probably fight to, you know, I'm not, maybe I'm not elevated enough, but would want to preserve are all being held by this sort of an abstract system of, of the economy. But look at blockchain and crypto is unwinding it. Think about all the BRIC nations now wanting to get off the dollar. So yep. again, you can see it splintering. Yeah, And you've got to focus on the splinters because the splinters are happening, except they're happening in slow motion for us. But think about 10 years ago, 20 years ago, where we were and where we are now. And even us talking about blockchain and even having half an idea of what it means, which we don't quite yet, because the practical applications of blockchain will really get us to understand blockchain because none of us really understand the internet. We understand the applications of the internet. And none of us understand electricity. We understand the applications on top of electricity. So we have to see the applications of blockchain still to come. And even that, like 10 years ago, was absolutely, you couldn't even think of it, Bitcoin coming and all these things. This is all slowly moving into our consciousness and will definitely start to move those powers in very, very different ways. We're evolving at a massive rate, you know? And I think that, remember, that technology goes slowly, 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 and then all of a sudden. And that's what always happens. It goes through the same process and all of a sudden things will start to change and I'm sure that will happen soon, you know? It kind of like leads into my interest because your job is to bring optimism and to be in that, from my understanding of listening to you, you need to go through and recognize your grief. With all of these changes that we're talking about, I think there also comes the grief, which is masked, as you said, by anger. My experience of people is often a resistance to grief because it, it can overwhelm, particularly when for years and years and years. And also the, when we're in groups, the grief is overwhelming because it's personal, but it's also so big when it comes to these sort of societal changes. So how do you, how do you speak to optimism and grief? I start off my talk with the necessity to process sadness so it doesn't show up as anger. And I explained that the strange world ahead of us requires curiosity, fascination, and excitement, not trepidation and fear, which is brought about by the, the unawareness of processing sadness as an emotion specifically. I kick it off with that. And then I, I touch on it two or three times inside the talk, talking about the need for emotional intelligence and wisdom 
is really the ability to process emotions, to sit with the story that we're running in our heads and to be able to unwind it, to unlearn it, to change our awareness of what's coming ahead. So the way I package it is that if you want to stay profitable in the future, which you do because you're a corporate and you're sitting here looking for profitability, the way you do that is through the process of emotions. So all again I'm trying to do for them is to explain to them the context of why it's so important, one, two, the permission for them to seek it out after the talk, and three, to explain to them how much of it I have done to get myself to this place, to be teaching you. has been an emotional process and an intellectual one, but with my energy, especially being on stage, if you see me live, you realize that I'm quite centered, I'm, I'm quite warm, I'm also quite authentic in the process that I've been following around this. And so I think it needs to be packaged and contextualized in a way that's non-intrusive, doesn't make them feel weak that they're doing it, but again, is speaking their language of profitability and future preparation, but it's really an emotional journey to get there. And to be honest with you, most of my audiences get it immediately because at work, you can't really talk about emotions. And here comes this futurist telling us it's okay to be emotional. So on a personal note, I can see aha moments. Whether that bleeds back into the company or not, I imagine it can slightly change their direction and conversations, but to give them permission, especially as a man, to give other men permission to be sad and to process it and to realize that that really is what's going to get you to become more adaptable in the future, the appetite is easier to want to ingest it. And you know, most of my workshops and masterclasses, I end with a 30-minute meditation and a lot of the executives have never meditated ever, and they are so grateful for it. But I spent six hours contextualizing why it was important to have a calm heart and a clear mind. And then yeah. it's easy to go and do it. On a personal level in your life, do you find that you're still having to make space that come with your meditation practice of processing sadness as changes happen in your world? Oh, I sob all the time. I cry all the time. I'm, uh, I love crying. And I have many coaches around me. And just recently on a podcast, we said goodbye to Eric's dog. And I sobbed the whole way through. I'm very good with it. I do still a lot of emotional work. I've just been going through a spurt of being angry. And I was with my two coaches this week. And both of them were like, yeah, and they were like talking about anger. And actually quite comfortable being in anger. You know, it's so, okay. I'll be angry for a while and use that anger in a space and just not just process sadness, but anger and rage and, and sadness and, and all the rest of them, you know. Where are the edges in your work now? Kind of like heading towards, is there another book? Is there, what, what are the edges that you're? <laughs> I am writing another book and I'm actually going to write on top of the book, no AI touch this book, because I think that's going to become necessary <laughs> in a real soon I'm writing with the lady who helps me put my thoughts together and uh, she's a copywriter. I said, I don't want any chat GPT on this. We shouldn't put it into any process of chat GPT because I want to put it on the headline. So I am writing a book and I'm only writing it because I'm working more and more in America and I have a publisher there. So they've asked me to write the book to move into the American market in 2024. But I do think bookshops will go the same way as CD shops because anything that becomes commoditized eventually just falls out of favor. You might have a few like classic bookshops that people will go to and spend time with and reminisce, but the newer kids are going to be arriving not even knowing what a book was, just like they don't know what a VHS is or a landline. So that's what I'm busy with. I think what's very unknown for me right now is where I'm going to be living next year, which is really strange because I have no idea where I'm going to be. As Dr. Joe says, the unknown has never let me down. So I'm trusting that process and see where it takes me. And I think the most important thing or the most scary thing right now is the potential of what AI is going to do. And we have let the genie out, the bottle, and we now have to deal with the genie. We don't, nobody knows how to put it back in the bottle. And so I think it becomes incredibly important for us to be changing our awareness to all of us collectively start to look for a better future. If we are all sitting in fear and trepidation for it, that is going to really reflect back to us in a very dark way with AI. So the job is change your awareness, see it as a friend, work with it as an optimistic partner, see it as a, as a friend and let's use it together to try and fix a better world, you know? Otherwise, it can be quite a scary thing. We're almost up at, at time and I, I apologize because I attributed the poem Miriam to a Persian poet, but it was actually Khalil Gibran. Gibran, yes. 
Yeah. And so I, I thought I'd just read one section from the poem mm. uh, to close mm. us off because it sounds like mm. it's for you or for all of us, but you've invoked it. You have been told also that life is darkness and in your weariness, you echo what was said by the weary. And I say life is indeed darkness, save when there is urge and all urge is blind, save when there is knowledge and all knowledge is vain, save when there is work and all work is empty, save when there is love. And when you work with love, you bind yourself to yourself and to one another and to God. Skipping down, work is love made visible. Definitely in the in the spirit of the bards and the Persian poets of wisdom poets, not Persian though, <laughs> but yeah, look back then. Uh, back then, it was uh, the the countries were demarcated in different yeah. ways. But yes, yeah, 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 yeah. and there right. was a human right. beautiful human legacy there. Tradition. There's a there's a great quote I use from him that says, "God forbid, you want your kids to be like you, and God willing, you want to be like your kids." Yes, amen to that. And uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that quote. It's beautiful. Yeah, that has a weird link to me because my South African friends I was mentioning before we started the podcast, we sang together and we sang that beautiful poem of your children, they're not yours, but they come through yes. you. And yes. it kind of parks back to the beginning of this interview when you said, you know, you related to Rumi because his words came through him and this work comes mm. through you. Yes. And I think there is also the answer to that question I asked about purpose and calling the things that come through you and in that flow state, they come through you and so that you can kind of do your work in the world. So, yeah, I feel incredibly grateful that you're doing your work in the world. Thank you. That's very kind of you. I'm, I'm loving it. I'm really loving it. It's so much fun. But, yeah, it's, uh, I think it's important work. I think it's important to get people to just have some level of excitement for not knowing what's coming. Thank you very much for, for traveling with us. Bringing it, bringing it along. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Beyond Listening podcast. For more information on how to adapt to a world of rapid change and flux for yourself, your organization, and your community, visit us at weareopencircle.com.